Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in. We are live in the Sustainable Self-Development Group with Berge Fagerli. This is our 10th Q&A. And yeah, hopefully some of you will tune in. If not, don't worry, this will be up on YouTube and on SoundCloud and on iTunes. So you will be able to watch it afterwards. And also I will be putting, or we will be putting together a little, a little summary booklet or document over our past 10 Q&As. So I'm looking forward to that one. It will take some work to get it together, but uh, I think we shared a lot of cool insights in our past 10 episodes like this. So it will be cool to get all of that summarized and it will be available for download, but I will let you know when that's out. Um, yeah, so we are going to answer a few of your questions. You are kind enough to submit them. So yeah, Berge, are you ready? Okay, so uh, first question is about DUP daily undulating periodization. So this is a training question. So the question is, how has Burgess views on daily undulating periodization changed or not changed in light of sustainability? Well, I guess uh, I have to ask uh, the question, what used to be my views? I mean, um, yeah. my views on daily undulating periodization uh, haven't really been... Well, yeah, I guess you could say they, they have been more refined lately simply uh, because I've been reminded of um, the premise that whatever load you apply to a muscle uh, the muscle will adapt to that so um, the most effective uh, progression model in my mind is is one where you are constantly incrementing the loads uh, or at least as often as possible um, now that being said if you just start a training phase and you cycle on a daily or weekly basis through different rep ranges and intensities and, and loads. Uh, that's also going to be very effective, but um, it, it's going to be effective because it's sort of hitting on different types of um, growth pathways, growth signaling pathways. So if you are lifting light or low loads for higher reps and you apply a heavy load, you will uh, induce a, a uh, very significant growth stimulus since it's so much heavier than the light weights that you have been uh, accommodating or um, adapted to. Simply due to the mechanical strain and, and the stretch on the tissue that will, you know, initiate uh, uh, a very um, potent growth stimulus. If you are adapted to lifting heavy loads, then uh, and, and um, you apply a low load for high reps, then you will induce further growth simply because low load high rep training adds a metabolic stimulus where it you know, burns in the muscle and, and uh, you get the adaptations connected to that, uh, whether it be satellite cell activation. And there was just a study that I posted in the, the SSD group um, looking at, uh, it was a Swedish uh, paper um, where they had used a weekly undulating periodization model and weeks four and eight, they did the high frequency low load occlusion training now this study they were able to display some of the highest growth rates ever seen in any research study uh, and so it's quite quite impressive um, but in my mind knowing what we know about the different growth pathways and knowing what we know about the repeated bout effect and and essentially the the um, the progression model that i find to be most effective is where you sort of separate the stimuli into two phases where you have like focus on metabolic stress 
and then mechanical stress, the stress where you just base, where you just uh, slowly taper off, and then start from low loads and build up in, into heavier loads. And the reason I think this is exactly because the the body will the body is very good at adapting to a given stimulus, a given load, a given type of uh, growth stimulus, a given stressor, and that adaptation uh, will last approximately three weeks until it tapers off. So by constantly changing that stimulus, this is why the daily underlying periodization models work so well because they do. But if you um, if if you compare them to a linear model, the difference is not that huge. And also I have I am yet to see a study where they actually um, uh, progress from 40 to 50 percent of one max up until 80 to 85 percent of one max. It's usually just Within a narrow rep range, or or just you know gradually and progressively increasing the loads as you get stronger. So we don't really have any research other than the ones from 1975 and and even before that, um, where they show that the progressive overloading uh, stimulus was the most effective uh, stimulus. So it, it's kind of strange that there hasn't been any any good hypertrophy studies uh, after that that has sort of confirmed that view. Um, that being said, in, in the name of sustainability, um, so so there's been like a couple of studies uh, looking at the, the different growth response from different rep ranges. One was uh, the so-called Beaven et al. study where they put people into uh, four different groups. Uh, and depending on what protocol they tested on, like they, they would test their cortisol and their salivary cortisol and testosterone output. So a positive test from a given training product, protocol, whether it be like two to three sets of 15, three sets of 10, four sets of five, or an explosive training protocol, um, you were deemed to have a positive response if you had a high testosterone output and a low cortisol output. So um, essentially a positive stress response. And you were uh, judged to have a, a, a negative response if you overproduced cortisol and didn't produce much at all of testosterone. And, and the participants in the study would generally just be, you know, all over the map. There would be, you know, some would test better on 10 reps, on, some on 5 reps, and some on 15, and some on the explosive protocol. And one would actually test better uh, on the heavy protocol after having done the explosive protocol for three weeks or so, uh, which makes sense, you know, since it worked at such um, sort of a deload. Now, what they noticed was that um, and this wasn't clear in the paper, but I came across this discussion online in, in a forum, like deep inside this forum. I don't know how I happened to find that thread, but participants of the study have been discussing how uh, enjoying training 10 reps would also correlate with uh, producing testosterone and having a low cortisol output and vice versa. So if you hate doing 10 reps, you will generally overproduce cortisol and thus have a negative response to that. And the highest growth rates were seen when they had a positive response to the training protocol. So hence, there's a high correlation between what rep range you uh, enjoy doing and, and the rep range you actually get better results in. Now, that being said, the bottleneck in any uh, muscle growth uh, process for any individual can be a lack of stimulus of um, an undertrained protocol uh, or undertrained rep range, so to speak. Which is why you see, um, by introducing occlusion training or high rep training to powerlifters, you suddenly see a, a very significant muscle growth in a short amount of time. 
And if you introduce heavy weights to people that are just, you know, been doing calisthenics or something really low load, high rep kind of thing, you also see a potent growth response. So again, it's not as if, okay, just do something novel, just do something new, but sort of find the elusive balance between something you enjoy and, and something that induces a different stressor than the one you're doing now. Um, and, and I think the beauty of the SSD system that we have created is that uh, the first cycle sort of allows you to go through all the different rep ranges and you get to see, okay, maybe you have always been like a 10 to 15 rep kind of guy. You've always been training five to six reps or something. And you sort of get to, you get to have experience with different rep ranges. And you also get to see whether there's a certain rep range or, or a low, loading range that you just enjoy doing better and see better growth and whatnot. And, and um, on the next cycle, we're obviously going to do follow videos where we discuss how you can individually adjust the program depending on what sort of profile you display. Are you like a, a really explosive, low work capacity kind of guy, or are you more of the strength endurance kind of guy? And sometimes working on, on your weaknesses is a good thing to do. Uh, but I think for sustainability to, to sort of have a linear approach where you go from low loads, high reps, all the way up to heavy loads and, and sort of low uh, reps, is is going to do to be the best strategy, bro, both from a growth standpoint and a sustainability standpoint, because you can later on adjust the training according to your individual response. So you get to see where do you grow better, what you enjoy doing better, and maybe you have certain injuries or whatever that that keeps preventing you from doing uh, heavy loading and, and low reps. So you would spend more time during the high rep phase, and and vice versa. Maybe you just hate life and and see. Uh, <laughs> You know, your your um, you. I mean, your your life is just slowly ebbing out of you whenever you do high rep training, and you just hate everything. So you would essentially just go quickly through that phase and get into the heavy loading instead. Um, so yeah, that that's a long way to uh, to explain that my view have have uh, certainly changed in favor of a more linear approach, where you get exposed to different loads and rep ranges, and then based on that, you can sort of tailor your training in later cycles. Awesome. Yeah, well, if at the end we will have some time, I potentially have uh, two follow-ups on that one, but uh, we still have some other questions to answer. So let's go to the next one, but uh, awesome response. Um, so the next question is about the sustainability of a meat-based diet. So the question is, do you really think that a mainly meat-based diet is sustainable? And I mean, not only on an individual basis, where the answer is probably yes, but worldwide. How long should someone be on a diet? Oh no, that was just my addition. So I'm not sure what he means by worldwide. Um, so maybe just let's address this question generally. Like, in your opinion, I wasn't like, not sure what, what, what's meant by sustainable, like sustainable from an ethical or environmental standpoint, or whether people would be able to do that or eat that as a lifestyle. I mean, these are like three different. Yeah. Questions. Yeah, I, and I think neither a meat-based or a plant-based diet is to fully sustainable. You can find uh, various calculations and arguments on, on the greenhouse emissions and, and um, the soil depletion rate and whatever of, of um, like growing plants to feed humanity would be impossible simply because it's, it has such a low caloric value. And growing plants or grasses to feed the animals that would feed us would probably also not be sustainable simply because, you know, 
we 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 are too many people on Earth to to actually enable enable us to do that. But I have seen models and, and calculations and and um, like simulations where we go back to the old ways of farming, uh, where the the um, where the animals will eat off a certain part of the uh, of uh, the land, uh, and then the other parts of the land will be able to grow, and so you shift this around. And and uh, that that seems to be like what we used to do hundreds of years ago was a lot more sustainable than the modern farming practices, where we're basically overproducing food and, and making uh, hum humanity obese and, and diseased. So, no, I don't think uh, uh, um, like a mainly meat-based diet. Yes, that would probably be sustainable for a large part of humanity, but. I, I honestly don't know whether that would be feasible. I, I don't think it would be feasible or sustainable for, for you know, all living persons on, on this planet, no. And um, earlier we mentioned, or this is kind of a question that we commonly answer in the group, that whether this carnivorous approach, which by the way, I, the more I talk about it, the more I hate to call it a name because it just invokes so much stigma and, and everything. But, you know, like a meat-based diet, which is like very animal food focused or maybe exclusively meat-based, like um, how long is the maximum duration that you think that one should be on it? Like you did for a couple of months, uh, but like what, what do you think? Do you think someone could actually keep it up for life? Yeah, and there have been people that uh, that are on it for life and, and have been so for like several decades. And uh, so you can't really argue with that. And, and I mean, this is this is sort of where nutritionists uh, and experts and authorities and, and all types of influencers that have a meaning and opinion about nutrition tend to clash with just on an individual level we should all be concerned about making people healthier and feel better and and i don't mean to feel better in the sense that we should just feed everyone chocolate because they would feel better doing that but they would obviously not feel better long term because it would ruin their health but i think any diet intervention that makes people cure diseases that they have been battling for several several years and have excellent blood panels and and like feel energetic and awesome why not try to figure out why that is what's the reason for that what happens here why do they suddenly improve so much when they remove all plants from their diets and and i mean these are people that have previously been vegans and vegetarians and some of them have, have just the most uh, in the, the people are insisting the most on a meat-based diet come from a vegan background, which is kind of interesting, you know. <laughs> um, but but I think stay on the diet that you feel the best on for as long as it takes you to feel good. And and um, just for my own sake, I mean, I used that diet and improved several uh, health parameters, and I got leaner and stronger and looked better and got comments on it as well. And then I just you know felt like eating some carb foods again, some fruits, some berries, some veggies. And I did that for a while. I gained some weight. I, I stopped feeling well. You know, I I, I got the usual blood sugar fluctuations and, and energy swings. And, you know, I had that reference point, that experience. And I knew to just go back to more meats and less carbs. And everything cleared up, especially my digestion and, and my, my gut health. So I think just having experience with different uh, diet approaches and also being aware of what you're doing stress-wise and lifestyle-wise because 
the more you know about diet, the easier it is to sort of blame and hang everything on what you're eating. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's like uh, you, you're trying. I mean, I, I've been coaching clients that that were just obsessing and overanalyzing every minor detail about their diets when the problem was that they were so fucking stressed out about what they were eating that that was causing the problem, not the food. <laughs> Yeah. So, so it's like a paradox. It's it's the whole irony of it that if you spend so much time thinking and worrying about what you're eating, that's actually doing more damage than whatever food you would be eating. Um. So, but but again, going by anecdotes, and, and now we're getting into the thousands of people that have just dramatically improved their their lives eating only meat. Of course, just cutting out junk food and sugars and and sticking to any diet will get you 80% of the way there, but there have been very health conscious people eating anywhere from vegan to vegetarian diets to whole food plant-based and paleo diets, and only when they dropped all plant foods did everything fall into place for them. So we shouldn't discount it. I think we should at least try to understand it and, and maybe then know how to use it as a tool to improve not only your body, your body composition, but also your health and energy levels. Yeah, that's well said. For me, one of the, the biggest kicker things which convinces me to kind of return to a more like less of a plant focused diet is um, people who haven't seen me in a while and saw me before when I was actually leaner, I was actually lower in body fat than I am now. But probably the bloating played such a big factor that now they're telling me that I lost so much weight and like, Abel, like, you, you, should, you should put on some weight like you're so slim. And I'm like, well, you've seen me leaner than this. It's just the bloat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I noticed the same thing. I mean, as soon as I started to let carbs creep up and loosening up on diets, uh, on my diets, or not loosening up on my diet, but allowing more plant foods and carb foods and that kind of stuff, and obviously lowered my, my fat intake, so I wouldn't end up eating a lot more foods, but um, I gained like four or five kilos in the span of one month, and a lot of it was water retention, but my, I mean, my waist went up two inches, five centimeters, simply due to bloating. And, yeah. and I started gaining fat. And, and for me, that's not a very sustainable. Up to a point where I felt like, my God, I want to eat meat now. I want to eat. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want an apple anymore. I don't want to eat veggies. So um, at, at some point, when you get experience with different types of foods, just learning to trust your instincts on this is, is by far better than seeking the help of any expert or authority or reading books about it yeah well said awesome uh next question i'm not sure uh, how much we can help out with this one but i selected in nevertheless uh so i donate blood on a regular basis every two or three months or so and i'm wondering if there's any considerations you would have in regards with regards to the workout schedule in the ssd program or is it just the good old listen to your body and work accordingly yeah, that's basically it. Listen to your body. I mean, uh, it's not like it, they drain you of blood, but you will feel dizzy and not have the same work capacity for a few days until um, the body starts producing more plasma and red blood cells. Um, so just take it easier for a few days. Have an extra rest day. Uh, skip the MyRep stuff and just do straight sets instead. Uh, like where you translate one MyRep set to two, three regular straight sets. Um, just go easier, have more reps in reserve, depending on the training phase you're in, since, you know, I prescribe uh, rest in reserve, uh, reps in reserve uh, from week to week, but feel free to 
accommodate uh, any anything that gets in the way with performing optimally, whether it be blood donation or the flu or having a cold or whatever. Perfect. Okay, uh, ad libitum eating and weekly weight fluctuations. So, um, if an intermediate lifter is within a healthy body fat and their main goal is to build muscle, what do you generally see in your own clients that use an ad libitum diet approach in terms of weekly body weight fluctuations? Would you make adjustments if weight is moving up or down too quickly? What would you ideally like to see happening? Slightly broad question. Yeah, really broad question. It's, it's, it's really highly individual. It's really variable. But um, like if the main goal is to build muscle, you, you should generally not, unless you're a total beginner, uh, gain more weight than maybe half percent of your body weight per week. So if you're 80 kilos, you shouldn't like gain more than 400 grams per week. And, and I think that's even on the high end of uh, things. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, like you would allow some weeks to be a higher weight gain and some weeks to be uh, weight stable and some weeks even to drop in weight. But just sort of, you you just need, to, that's why I think some of these like eight or 10 week studies are kind of ridiculous because everyone that has been in the business or training for many years, they know that it takes many months to accumulate sufficient muscle mass to even be able to measure it with the finest uh, instruments. So um, um, you, you just need to have a more long-term pers perspective. But as that Norwegian uh, study from Ina Gartha showed, um, where they just allowed people to eat according to hunger, they had better, or they had almost the same muscle gains, but, but gained very little fats compared to those that had uh, like, um, a prescribed 500 calorie surplus. They gained slightly more muscle mass, but gained like a ton more fat, simply because there's a limit to how fast or how quickly you can build muscle. And and going by hunger is to me more reliable as as long as you have the the correct um, signaling going on in your brain um, and and proper food choice, obviously. Um, so if you circumvent all of those hunger signals by eating uh, processed foods, uh, high in fat, high in carbs, very uh, tasty stuff, then obviously you can't trust your hunger as much as someone eating according to what we uh, uh, recommend. Um, but since it's an ad limitum, ad limitum approach, if, if weight is moving up too quickly and we see that, because I don't just look at body weight, I look at um, measurements as well, uh, body fat calipers or DEXA or whatever. Um, and, and if you see body fat gain according to body weight, then you know something is off and you should just go and have a look at what you're actually eating and, and perhaps change around some food choices that maybe tend to make you overeat. For instance, I noticed that whenever I add more like protein powders uh, that I mix into this porridge kind of thing with berries and, and add stuff to that to make it very tasty, I can easily eat 500 calories more that day than I would otherwise do. So getting more in tune with the accurate sense of hunger and, and satiety uh, is the first order of things, and which is why we spend some time looking at that in SSD system. Uh, but ideally, you would obviously be gaining at a certain rate, but not maybe on a weekly average, but bi-weekly average. And um, you would do daily weigh-ins and then put this in a spreadsheet so you sort of even out all the spikes and peaks and valleys, basically. And then look on the weekly rate and then the bi-weekly rate and, and sort of see if you're moving in the right direction according to the measurements and, and make judgments 
along the way. Uh, that's the, what, what the process is, is about. Yeah, I had that uh, protein powder pudding thing when you were here. That that shit um, is is definitely very tasty. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, next question, uh, which is an interesting one, and I'm also curious about this. So it seems like as the average individual ages, they tend to put on more body fat. Do you think this is more lifestyle related uh, or something inherent in an individual's BMR or hormonal levels causing a decrease in resting metabolic rate? Well, it's all of these. <laughs> I mean, we know that aging causes anabolic resistance where the muscle doesn't respond as well to training or amino acid signaling. Um, basal metabolic rate doesn't really vary all that much. It, it tends to decrease slightly, but uh, obviously the more stress you have in your life from your lifestyle, uh, the less you can tolerate of stress from training and nutrition. Uh, nutrient partitioning has changed, hormones change, testosterone levels go down, estradiol levels go down, all the anabolic hormones and all the catabolic hormones increase, you have less growth hormone. So yeah, there are plenty of things going on in in, uh, in the human body as it ages that causes uh, nutrient partitioning or the ability to build muscle related to fat uh, at a certain calorie surplus or training protocol. Um, it's, it's just the way it is. So it, it, that's not to say, because I have some people asking me, well, I'm like in my 40s and I wanted to try your SSD system or SSD program. Do you think that's just, uh, that's any point at all? And, and I'm like, well, of course, it's always going to be a point. Yeah. It's always going to be a benefit, but yeah. it's not going to be as beneficial as when you're 16 and, and just producing testosterone like an elite bodybuilder. On drugs i mean it's just it is what it is so but you still got to do the best uh with what you already have what what cards you were dealt whether it be genes or, or hormones or age so I, I i don't really find these discussions any any interesting anymore i just tend to say well just accept it the, the way it is try to improve as much as you can and, and let whatever happen happens uh, whatever happens happen yeah and like it's the whole thing about people gaining weight as they age. Like when I was in this holiday with my girlfriend in Greece and I was chilling on our hotel room's terrace and I was watching these kids uh, on this football field next to us and they were just like playing around and playing these games with their ball and everything. And like the amount that they moved over the course of those like half an hour that I was chilling there, like when do we do something like that? Like never. When I was in high school, we ran to the garden to play soccer between classes as soon as we could. Like now, if I stand up during the day like two times to take a 10-minute walk, like I already consider that a success. So yeah, but you're lazy as fuck, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, really. I mean, yeah, for sure. We, we, we stop playing around and moving as much the older we get. And it's sort of a, this inherent laziness, but also modern, our modern environment that, that enables this, you know? So... But it, but it's still it's it's still not an excuse. I mean, people gain weight for a reason. It's not like well, it's just because I'm older. No, it's probably because you're older and moving less and eating more. So yeah. so it's it's multiple multiple factors. Um, but but yeah, again, it's, it's there's always a, a good explanation for it. Oh yeah, this this one funny thing, the, um, uh, this Norwegian elite athlete, um, they actually follow this this young girl around. They put some uh, tracking device on her, 
and uh, she went to just play with her friends during uh, you know school or whatever after school and uh, they just tracked her movements for i think it was 30 minutes or 45 minutes and afterwards this this uh, elite athlete guy that won the olympics uh, a couple of years ago um they they had him try to emulate or copy exactly what a young girl was doing just as normal play around playing around and he was absolutely wasted he was so yeah. exhausted afterwards he had to lay down and get massages and you know electrolyte drinks and whatever because he just couldn't take it so yeah i heard that yeah yeah, yeah so for sure you, you uh you just gotta admire the i mean i i have a one-year-old boy and he's I, if if I were to follow him around for one day and he he hasn't learned to walk yet, uh, I would probably not be sitting here today. Yeah, yeah, very good points. Okay, so uh, next question. So, by reading some feedback on car the carnivore diet, I see that some people, when reintroducing vegetables or non-animal products, feel bad and have some digestive problems. I know our gut microbiome gets changed and stuff like that but it seems like they get worse reactions to the, to the different foods after the carnivore diet than before. So is the carnivore diet really a good option? If after doing it, you cannot worse? Okay, this is a bit of a clunky question, but we get the point. So what do we think of this? Well, I have tended to see the opposite reaction. When people used a carnivore diet for 30 to 60 days and then reintroduced foods, their digestion for foods that they previously couldn't tolerate has improved dramatically. I had that experience myself. So, so it's, um, there, there's probably two types of reactions here. One is that since you are um, experiencing a huge die-off of the bacteria that uh, were perhaps overpopulating your gut and causing issues uh, what, from your previous diet, so you're sort of rebalancing the gut. And thus, when you reintroduce plant foods, depending on what foods you are uh, introducing, uh, you will improve your digestion. But there's also another point that whenever you, uh, like in this instance, you, you haven't been eating carbs for a long time, there are different enzymes and also bacteria needed to digest and metabolize that food optimally. So you need to eat that food for at least three to five days to allow the body to, uh, to accommodate or to adapt. So an initial reaction shouldn't mean that, oh, my God, this is uh, bad for me. I, I should stop eating it again and go straight back to a carnivore diet. Give it three to five days and, and maybe not, you know, don't jump straight into eating just, you know, tons of uh, broccoli or oatmeal or whatever. Just slowly introduce a certain food and allow the body to adapt to it. And, and you should probably be fine. So in, in my opinion and from my experience, I have seen quite the opposite, that people are able to tolerate more foods after a zero-carb approach, but then others don't give that food enough time or they introduce like 10 or 20 different foods at, uh, at the same time and, and thus you just kind of overload the system. Um, so, so my approach where you just introduce one food, I know it takes some patience, but it's well worth it if you really want to get some information here. Allow that one food or food group three to five days, then see how you feel. Then reintroduce another food group or food, or what, um, or even two to three foods. You know, if you want to stretch it, and, and you otherwise feel fine doing it. And by following this process, you can reintroduce foods gradually and instantly get like, a, okay, so you've been eating oatmeal for five days, and you just feel worse and worse instead of better and better. Now, for you, that means you should probably not be eating oatmeal. 
uh, that it's it's a food that doesn't sit well with you. Then again, for some people, they have such a reduced um, digestive capacity. They might have gut permeability. They might have uh, uh, major reactions, allergic reactions to a certain food simply because their gut lining is so broken down and that may take several months to rebuild and then gradually introduce and, and allow the body to adapt this is what they've been doing in, in Hungary as well at Paleo Medicina so, so it might take longer than a 30 day uh, carnivore trial to get to the point where you can reintroduce any food and feel well eating it but, but again just sort of be, be aware of this whole process and, and give it time don't anxiously jump from one food to the other and one diet approach to the next. Give it some some time, monitor and adjust accordingly. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I just think for sure that the carnivore approach is the best elimination diet there is simply because you're eliminating everything. And eating something that most people can digest just fine and feel well on. Uh, that being said, there are some people that react uh, negatively to lamb's meat or, or pork or even regular beef and need to eat certain types of meats and fish. Um, so, so it's just highly individual, I think. It's not a general answer to this. Yeah, actually, I was just linking to you the other day an interview with Kamal Patel. Uh, that's his name, right? From Examine with the Jeff Nipper on Jeff Nipper's channel. And and they were referencing you uh, and your carnivore diet experiment. And Kamal Patel said that probably the best intervention for digestive issues is fasting. And after that, probably an experiment like this, where you're eliminating everything that could cause these autoimmune issue issues. And actually an interesting thing he said, which might not we might not have time to delve into now, is that if you're not interested in going through like keto adaptation and some of those things that have to take place in a carnivorous approach, maybe you could try a meat-based diet with some simple form of dextrose or, or some simple glucose so that, so you, that can, you can... Yeah, maltodextrin or, or dextrose, yeah. 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 yeah, so yeah, very interesting. But maybe we can talk about this more in another episode. Um, okay, so we may have a question for another one. And basically, if I want to translate this question very simply, it's about hormesis, which is the concept of you introduce a stressor to the body and the body... Uh, adapts to it by making itself stronger and resisting that stressor more in the future. So if that's the case that that works, and it works with a lot, a lot of things like exercise and plant foods and all kinds of things, um, could it be conceivable that occasionally eating some crap and processed foods could be beneficial to strengthen our body? <laughs> uh, this is a guy that wants uh, validation for doing yeah. just that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm heading down to McDonald's to induce hormesis. In in principle, I wouldn't call it hormesis per se, but I mean, hormesis is about dose. And uh, th there's, I think no matter what positive the adaptation is going to be, it's not as if you will at some point be able to tolerate it full time. So like cold hormesis, it's not as if you would at some point, if you just went completely Wim Hof, and did like the Iceman protocols, and, and you could run a marathon in, in the on Mount Kilimanjaro, in, in you know, butt naked or something. But I don't think you would be able to live in in below zero temperatures. So so you can get positive adaptations, and if you adjust the dose according to the adaptation you see in the body, uh, the same way we do with uh, foods and training in general. Um, 
at some point you would be more resistant to that effect. Um, so <laughs> I guess, yeah, in theory, I, I just think that all of us are able to tolerate eating junk food and crap once in a while. But I think looking at it as a hormetic stressor and then having junk food days to induce a positive adaptation so that we can tolerate more junk food later on is just a completely <laughs> wrong way of looking at it. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, so I'm going to take this uh, tiny dose of cyanide every day until I adapt to it so that I somewhere down the line can chomp down on like a meal of cyanide, <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay, that's sort of taking it to the other end of the extreme. But I think, you know, if you want to eat some crap food, just eat some crap food. Don't call it hormesis, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't mean to laugh, but it's to me getting to a point where we're he hearing all of this interesting and cool concepts and we try to make it fit, you know? whatever we want to do. So, yeah, what do you think about cocaine? Isn't that like, like heroin? Maybe that's a good hormesis, you know, hormetic yeah. stressor. Just yeah. once in a while, shoot up and, you know, sleep outside. That's, you know, then you combine both a drug overdose with a, you know, cold hormesis, you know? That would be <laughs> awesome. So, okay, I'm being, you know, I, I don't mean to make fun, but um, I, I think you just, you know, have some crap food now and then don't put labels on it or feel bad about it afterwards. You know, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, perhaps um, the only point that I think might be interesting to bring up here is there is this guy or this brand, the Bulletproof Diet, you know, Bulletproof Coffee and all of that. And the Bulletproof Diet, I don't know its most recent iterations, but the original premise is basically that you should avoid everything on the face of earth that could potentially be harmful. So avoid tomatoes because that has lectins and, and whatever, you know, avoid these types of meats and these types of sweeteners and, and that, that kind of vegetable because that has goitrogens in it and whatever. And it's like, well, like stay, stay inside with a daylight lamp eating, you know, drinking smoothies and never expose yourself yeah. to anything, you know, yeah. and you're going to live until you're 100 years old and, you're going to think that your life has been super cool and interesting because you watched all of it uh, on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, and if you go to a restaurant, then make sure that you take like X amount of pills of active charcoal because that absorbs all the toxins and everything. And it's like, are you really making yourself bulletproof or are you actually making yourself super weak because you're never exposing yourself to anything that could potentially be somehow harmful at some point? So, yeah, it's like just maintaining that healthy balance, I guess, is... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I is. think yeah. so. I mean, having some awareness of the effects of food. And, and, and again, I mean, I, I, I always, uh, I always um, announce this, this challenge uh, in my seminars. Uh, I challenge anyone in the audience to um, you know, just, just name healthy foods. Name one healthy food or name one food that there has never been done a study showing that it's harmful. And, and so far, no one has been able to do that. You can name any food on the planet today, any substance on the planet today, and there is some at least one study saying that it's harmful. Yeah. Uh, so at some point, you, 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 know, you, you have to consider context. You have to consider uh, the rest of your lifestyle because you know, epidemiological research, with, which is you know, used as sort of a reference for how we should be eating and, and how we should be living, it's it's 
just trying to look at chaos and, and teasing out, yeah, that's, that's it. It's a saturated fat. That's what's killing you. Well, it could be that, or it could be that you're smoking a 20-pack per day of cigarettes, you know? So it, it, it's like at, at some point we all know how to eat healthy like adults. But it's when we get when we lack energy and motivation and and and, and uh, experience life-threatening diseases that we start looking for causes, and and that's where it's going to just be difficult. I mean, th- there are so many variables involved that I think we just have to do the best we can do uh, from day to day, uh, having some uh, informed judgment about what we eat and what we expose our bodies to in terms of environment and training stress and, and all that, and, and managing as best as we can, but, but then leave it at that. Because it, it, it can get to a point, I have this one guy sending me questions on almost a weekly basis, and you can just tell from the tone of the written words in the email that this guy is stressed out as fuck about everything. I mean, just basically, what type of tea should I drink to... What type of light bulb should I have in my house to avoid the circadian rhythm desynchronization? You know, it's, it's like the more information and the more you know, the more paralyzed, you know, what's what's the word for it? Paralysis by analysis, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it gets to a point where you just forget to fucking live your life. You just get so obsessed about all these minor details and, and looking for problems everywhere that you you lose perspective. You lose that, you know, the point of sustainability is to have something you can do for the rest of your life but then allow some variation within that range. And, and the whole point is supposed to be that you should feel awesome, feel great. And if you don't, then perhaps start looking for some answers, but don't make yourself feel terrible just because you're stressed as fuck about trying to be perfect. You know, then, then you're the cause of your issues, not saturated fat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess the conclusion of this uh, Q&A, as usual, is just uh, we have to learn to chill the fuck out while searching for optimality. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so maybe that could be a motto for the podcast. Like, aim to get a little bit better than you were yesterday and chill the fuck out. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Cool. So uh, we got to, we went a bit over 45 minutes and uh, we answered almost all of the questions. So the ones that we didn't get to, maybe we can answer in the next one. Yeah. Or I can just sort of like the one on how does Borg manage motivation? I can just tell you right away that motivation is overrated. Motivation is the the most uh, volatile fuel you can ever use. So build in habits and routines. And let motivation come from being inspired. You know, you get inspired by seeing that what your routines or your actions is all actually leading to a positive result. And that's where motivation just spontaneously appears. I don't try to force motivation. So I think that's a good answer for that one. And how do you keep an eye on progression when you're always training in an auto-regulated fashion? And I mean, come on. (laughs) It's like if if you're able to do more weight for more reps at any point in, in a given exercise, then you know you're progressing. So I really don't see that that's even a problem at all. I I can easily see that I'm progressing from training cycle to training cycle because I'm doing more reps for a higher load. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Cool. Cool. Yeah, we did. (laughs) Awesome. 
Cool. So uh, thank you for thank you everybody for tuning in. This was Q and A number ten. So thank you for all of you for submitting a lot of questions up until this point. I hope you enjoy these ones, and we will try. To and, so, and sorry for the ghost delight, but I'm sitting in the guest room as to not disturb my uh, one-year-old son who is trying to sleep. So the lighting is piss poor in here. I'll make it. I'll improve it for the next one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also sorry for, um, I got some complaints that I'm tilting my head while I'm doing these. But you have to keep in mind that I'm seeing Berge in the side of my monitor in a small window like this. So I have to kind of angle myself to see him. So. Oh, uh, man, stop tilting your head, man. You're such a loser. How can you keep tilting your head? Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about personal development and whatever. Actually complaining about you tilting your head. I think they have problems. You don't. <laughs> uh, well, we all have weird problems. So. That's silly. That's just... <laughs> Yeah, but uh, anyway, so uh, thank you for tuning in and we will try to make one of these happen again in like a week or two or something. Uh, we will let you know when that happens. And so, uh, yeah, that would be our Q&A for today. So thank you for tuning in and see you next time. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Burge Fuggerly. This program not only contains a 12-week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. And besides this, you will also be getting some really awesome bonuses like Burger Fuggerly's Myo Reps and Zero Carb ebook. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash SSD program. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.